Let's begin our time together afresh with prayer that God would continue to speak through his word as he's spoken in times past and will talk and speak to us in times future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We do echo the prayer that, Lord, you would speak to us through your word as you have once spoken before. May you guard my tongue. May you open our hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And may we embrace this gospel as the good news today, tomorrow, and forever. Guide us in your great wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Tommy Morrison, um, this may be a name some of you remember as the boxing big shot of the 90s. Uh, He was a Kansas City celebrity who um, is famous for training in Lenexa to beat, uh, to beating out the killer uh, George Foreman uh, for the heavyweight title of the world. Um, He also made Westport his playground and come to find out that he was a starring and leading role in Rocky V. Anybody remember that? Oh, well, somebody does. Well, I didn't because nobody, hardly very few people remember Rocky V. And yet, good job. Way to go. Um, regardless of this fame that he, that he somehow captured in Rocky V with a few fans that are just holding strong, um, he made his way onto late night TV. He made his way into the late night party scene. He'd always dreamed and longed to be famous. And his dream finally came true. And with it came the lifestyle, the women, and the drugs, and everything that comes with that sort of fame. It seemed as if Tommy was on the top of the world. Nothing could stop him until, in 1996, his whole life comes to a screeching halt. He was two, two fights away from ear-biting Mike Tyson, and uh, his manager approaches him and says that he has failed the pre-fight blood test. So what happens with Tommy is that with all of his lifestyle, with his promiscuity, it finally catches up with him, and he contracts HIV. Tommy, at first, when he finds out, he travels all around the nation, standing before audiences of strangers, telling about the dangers of promiscuity. But then something happens after a while. Something that can't be explained in any other way except that Tommy fabricates his own reality. He can't face what's going on. And in this reality that he creates, HIV doesn't exist. And if it does exist, you know, it's not as lethal as the media makes it out to be. Okay, maybe HIV does exist and it is lethal, but he doesn't have it. He never had it. And this whole conspiracy was, you know, with him failing the pre-fight blood test was just to get him out of the boxing ring. People would approach him and say, Tommy, what about the spots on your arms and your hands? And he would say, oh, those are dog bites from my puppy boxer. Oh, you mean those aren't lesions? Those aren't Kaposi sarcoma? No, 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 those might be mosquito bites, even though it's the dead of winter. You know, and he was so, he spoke with so much conviction about his reality, this world that he'd created. And amidst all of this great fame, this bright star entered into a really dark world of exclusion and self-deception. I mean, he would spend days in chat rooms. Anybody remember chat rooms? He would spend days in chat rooms with other HIV deniers. 
When he would be interviewed by reporters, time and time again, he would talk about how he could teleport out of bars, you know? Um, This whole world, he so desperately wanted to be looked up to, to be liked, that he couldn't face his own reality. And he ran, and he ran. And he lived into this self-deception until finally reality caught up with him. And he died at the young age of 44. It's a heartbreaking story, and many of us in here may be be responding the same way I did when I first read that. That's an unbelievable story. That could never be me. I would never, you know, I'd never be that crazy. And yet, we do it all the time, don't we? Yeah, maybe you're not telling a reporter that you can teleport out of a bar. And if you are, you need to stop it, because you can't, okay? Let's just nip that one in the bud. But... We do have this uncanny knack of pushing the truth down deep within us, of failing to surrender those lies that we hold so dear, lies that take our work environment and make them toxic environments, lies that short-circuit relationships, lies that steal daily joy, lies that when you're in community group, bring one of two things, depending on your personality. Either it keeps you quiet because you don't want to talk about it, Or it makes you talk a lot about things that have nothing to do with your life (laughs) so that nobody asks a question that really penetrates your heart. And all of these lies, the ones that are the most dangerous are the ones that we tell ourselves, aren't they? Dr. Chris Thurman in his book, The Lies We Believe, he writes this about self-deception. The lies you tell yourself every day are killing you. Every lie that goes through your mind is slow self-inflicted psychological and spiritual death. Every lie you think costs you your life. The lies we believe are the mental bullets that kill our souls and they inflict significant damage often without our even realizing it until it's too late. And we're all in danger of falling prey to self-deception. In the passage that we just heard read for us, Paul knows of the danger of self-deception. He's writing to a little church in the first century that's meeting in Corinth. They heard the good news about Jesus, the Christ, who had lived and then who had been crucified and then rose again. But this news, this good news, this gospel, it doesn't really appeal to their cultural sensibilities and practices. And so they're wrestling with Jesus Christ crucified and what that means for Jesus. Jesus Christ crucified and what it means on where they find their identity, on where they find and define their activities, and what it means for the very personhood of God. And really, the Jesus Christ crucified seems like foolishness compared to everything else they're hearing in, our, in their city. And so the wisdom they're being told is to move on to bigger and better things. Bigger and better things rather than Jesus Christ crucified for us daily, the truth that we need to remind ourselves of every morning we wake up and every night we go to bed. And this is where we find that this first century church in Corinth is a lot like the 21st century in Kansas City, yeah? It's a lot like us. And when you come to this letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul summarizes everything he's been saying In chapter 1, chapter 2, and all the way throughout chapter 3, up to verses 18 through 20. And I just want to read those for us, where he says, Let no one, what? Deceive himself. Let no one deceive herself. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, 
Let him become a fool, the foolishness of the cross, that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And this is actually a metaphor of a hunter pursuing prey. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And what Paul is saying is don't fall into the trap. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you can move past the cross of Jesus Christ because it's going to end in futility. And beware the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves when we wake up in the morning, when we're in a conflict at work, when we go to bed at night or we can't find sleep at night, the lies that we hold on to. And Paul says, don't deceive yourself. There are a lot of lies out there. But the Apostle Paul in our passage, in the first 17 verses, tackles three of the most common lies that we tell ourselves. And he walks us through those lies and shows us how they can find their rest. They can be put to death in the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that first lie that we most often tell ourselves, the lie that we tell others. It's that, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Now, for, for the Corinthians, they were a little more bold in their culture. They would have said, you know what, I'm really pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, they would have come out right out and said it, whereas in our modern culture, we try to act humble. <laughs> no, I'm doing okay. I'm fine. I probably won't say I'm awesome because that is blatantly arrogant, but underneath, I'm doing okay. And inside, we're like, I'm great. Um, and so I'm doing a little translation work here to make it more real to us and what we would say. And Paul makes it clear in verses 1 through 4 that these early Christians in Corinth, they think they're smarter They think they're more spiritual. They think they're morally superior than Paul and everyone else for that matter. You know what? I think we're doing okay. Thank you very much. But Paul knows better. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's writing here, But I, brothers and sisters, he's actually talking to the whole community there, not just the guys. Brothers and sisters, I, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, as infants in Christ. Now we're stepping into a conversation. There have been multiple letters before 1 Corinthians between the church in Corinth and Paul, and we're stepping into the conversation that Paul has already been teeing up in the first two chapters of Corinth, okay? So we're stepping into this, and they've been saying, hey, we're the mature ones. We've got our act together. Look at us. We've arrived. And Paul says, I can't agree with you. I can't call you spiritual. I can't even talk to you as if you're spiritual because you're acting like infants. In other words, they don't know what it means to walk in the ways of the cross. They're infants. They haven't learned the rudimentary practices of walking in the ways of Jesus. And that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Because we all wrestle with that. We all want to move past the cross and think that that was a really neat idea that happened back then. But it should shape everything about our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. You see, self-deception, it runs really, really deep. So deep that we can't, we many times just skim over and miss it completely. You know, there are different categories of ignorance. You know, there are those who know they don't know. And then there are those who know what they don't know. And then there are those who don't know what they don't know. (laughs) 
And that's kind of where we find the Corinthian believers. They don't know what they don't know. And Paul helps us, he helps them, by highlighting and, and giving a couple symptoms that there is deep self-deception going on in our hearts. A couple symptoms that, that percolate to the surface. Some lesions, some Kaposi sarcoma that's coming to the surface that knows that there is deep sickness in our bones, okay? And so the first, it all starts with this hidden emotion of jealousy that he highlights here in verse 3. Jealousy is probably not foreign to anyone sitting in this room. If it is foreign to you, then you're just not self-aware. Somebody has to say it. Um, if If you've ever been bummed about a colleague getting a promotion rather than celebrating, if you've ever assessed a person's prowess based upon their possessions, then you know jealousy well. Jealousy is feeling envy over someone else's achievements or advantages. Jealousy is feeling envy over someone else's achievements or advantages. And this jealousy, we have to remember who we're dealing with here in Corinth. The people who are moving to Corinth, they were moving to Corinth because this is a unique pocket in the Roman Empire. There's hardly any social mobility in the ancient world, but Corinth was new money. You had ex-slaves and retired soldiers moving to this community to make a name for themselves. Maybe slaves could become masters. Maybe soldiers could become politicians. And they wanted the fame that Corinth had to offer. And so as they begin to follow Jesus, these old desires for fame, for recognition, for acknowledgement, they die. They, they don't die very easily, and they're lagging behind as they're following Jesus. And these, these Christians aren't even aware. They're not even aware of what's going on in their life until, until not only do we move from jealousy, but it moves to the more obvious symptom of strife. You see, we can try to contain jealousy as much and as hard as we might, but eventually it leaks to the surface, doesn't it? And it leaks to the surface in arguments, in strife, Paul talks about. And actually what they're doing is they're forming these unique little cliques. And these, each of these little cliques are connecting with a particular leader. And we don't know, we don't know everything as to why uh, these groups are, are separating. But here's the deal. Underneath every jealous thought, every contentious argument that we have is something much, much deeper. Whenever we get frustrated that our colleague got that promotion, whenever we have to start an argument because we want everybody to know I'm doing okay, there's something much, much deeper going on in our heart. And we need to stop telling ourselves the lie that I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. I'm doing okay. Has anybody ever seen the, um, the Lego movie? <laughs> Anyone? Okay. I really, I really feel, I feel awesome. Eliana has seen it. It is, oh, and we got others. Okay, so I, I'm not alone. The Lego movie, the whole premise of the Lego movie is self-deception. You see, the evil ruler, Lord Business, what an interesting name, right? The evil ruler, Lord Business, he doesn't want everybody in the world to know about his evil plot. And so he has them singing from the moment they wake up, throughout their days as they work, and even as they go to bed, everything is awesome, right? Everything is awesome. And you only have to watch the movie once, you know, to realize not everything is awesome. You only have to look at your heart once to realize not everything is awesome right? We're wrestling through a lot of stuff. We're not doing okay. We don't have to fabricate a whole nother reality to avoid our mess. We're not doing okay. 
And we need to see the lie for what it is and hold on to the truth that God expects us to grow. God expects us to grow. You see, the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. And the reason the lie, I'm doing okay, is so dangerous is because in our self-deception, we actually limit what God has in store for us. We actually limit what God has in store for us. What do I mean? Imagine you've, and some of you don't have to imagine, this is your reality. You may have gone through a very, very painful situation and you don't want to talk about it. You don't ever want to bring it up again. It will remain in your past in a compartment in a box in your closet. And yet in that pain, the wound festers because it hides in secrecy. Whereas God wants to work through you now to empathize with others, to walk with others through great pains of grief and to point to him in the midst of it. Maybe another example is you've been wrestling through temptation in one particular area and you failed and you failed and you failed and you failed. And you're afraid to ever let anyone know because your pride wants you so desperately to keep this image that everything is okay when you know so desperately that it's not. And if you would just step out and and engage in true repentance, God will bring healing. As sin is exposed, it is made vulnerable. And as your sin is exposed to others, you may very well give strength to others to have transparency and know the freedom of true repentance. When we say, I'm doing okay, we strip God from really doing some magnificent work in our lives and through our lives. You see, the power of the cross, some of its most astounding work, isn't that God is saving us from something outside of us. This is true, but the most astounding work of the cross and what God is doing through Jesus Christ crucified is that he's saving us from something inside of us. We are broken and bent people in need of great restoration and wholeness, and nothing else can pierce our hearts like the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we rest And knowing that we are not okay, and we come to rest in the truth of Jesus Christ crucified on our behalf, we can finally begin to see how the cross puts to death the flesh. Paul talks about this old way of thinking and actually shows us the way, the life we long to live, the life we were designed to live, the new life in the power of the Spirit. You see, Paul will say time and time again throughout 1 Corinthians That in the cross, we're not just saved from our sin, but we're saved to the freedom of new life here and now. And some of you may be thinking, there's no way that's true. You've been wrestling in pain and temptation for so long. The power of the cross feels like it's been stripped of all of its weight. I understand, but one of the most dangerous lies that you can be telling yourself the, the most dangerous pathway to, to just surrender in cynicism is to just now say, I'm doing okay. You know what? I'm doing fine. And we need to hold on to the truth instead that God expects you to grow for your good and his glory. Make that the truth you tell yourself every morning you wake up and look in the mirror, every night when you go to bed. God is expecting you to grow for your good and his glory. The second lie Paul addresses in our passage, a lie we all all too often tell ourselves as well and we begin to tell others, is that I'm pretty important. (laughs) I'm pretty important. You know, as, as good urban folks, right, we have a value of equality. We love to be on the side of equality. Now, the one thing we're not ready to just admit out in the open is that we also love hierarchies. (laughs) You know, uh, deep down, we love it when we're on top. 
don't we? We love to be at the top of the hierarchy, the, the one that everybody looks up to. And maybe you can say, no, no, Gabe, that's not me. Okay, you're not self-aware to admit that yet. I get it. Let's, let's get to the other part. There is one aspect where I think we can all admit with true honesty and protect our pride, okay? This is nobody likes to be on the bottom. Anybody love having the lowest grade in your class? Anyone love being the last person to get a promotion? Anybody love being the last person in a community to get the joke? <laughs> no one loves that, right? No one wants to be that person who's always behind, who's on the bottom. Every one of us can at least admit that with sincerity. And yet, here we are, wrestling through our hierarchies. And we love our hierarchies. And as long as we don't have to be on the bottom, we're going to be okay. Now, what am I talking about? That's a really good question. When you get to 1 Corinthians, at first blush, it seems really weird that everybody's arguing about who they're following. Well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. And earlier in chapter 1, I follow this guy named Cephas, which is actually Peter, but Cephas is his Jewish name. And we don't really know, like I said earlier, what they're arguing about. We've got some ideas. This, this is probably a multicultural community. Paul has Roman citizenship. Apollos is Greek. And Peter, they emphasize his Jewishness by using the name Cephas. And in a multicultural community, maybe the Romans are attaching to Paul, and the Greeks are attaching to Apollos, and the Jews are attaching to Peter. And they're seeking to make themselves more important than other ethnic groups. I, I don't know. There, there are different scenarios. But one thing we do know is that they're using these groups and they're manipulating their leaders to make themselves feel more important than they really are. They're manipulating these groups and these divisions to make themselves feel more important than they really are. And Paul sheds some light on our self-deception here by taking us on a field trip to the farm. Okay, um, we are as Kansas Cityans, we are uh, a city that is too big for one state. You know, we can celebrate the fact. And so, if you look in Missouri and then you look in Kansas, either state you're going to find a lot of farms, right? And I have some cousins in Western Kansas who have a huge farm. Farmers work probably harder than most people I know. They get up early and they go to bed late and they sleep hard because they work hard. And, and farmers, they work to plant, to, to cultivate, and to irrigate their crops. But at the end of the day, everyone has to admit, something else makes the crops grow. It isn't the farmers, you know, doing magic. I mean, God makes the crops grow. He provides and protects for the crops to grow. So if you compare a farmer with God, I think he's got the more significant role. And what Paul does here in this metaphor of the farm is that he begins to list off the people everyone would put at the top of their hierarchy. He lists off Paul and Apollos. And look what he says in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? I mean, you, you, you guys are lobbying for these guys, but who are they? And I think you've got it all wrong. You see, these guys, Paul and Apollos, they're not lords. Ultimately, they're servants. Only Jesus, the God-man, is the Lord of the field. God owns the field, God divvies out the responsibilities, and God makes the growth happen. And if you scour the pages of Scripture and you look throughout history, the greatest of leaders have always only been servant farmers listening to God's instructions on God's field. That's it. At the end of the day, 
And we can tell everyone until we're blue in the face, you know what, I'm really important. We can look at ourselves in the mirror and stack up our own evidence as to why we think we're some of the greatest people the world's ever known, or at least I'm pretty important. But at the end of the day, that lie will not bring satisfaction. Trying to convince ourselves of that every morning and every night is exhausting. But the truth that brings life, the truth that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ, is that God's pretty important. That's what Paul's making sense of in this farm metaphor. And the most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. And the reason this lie is so dangerous is that it steals credit that rightfully belongs to God. If God's the one who owns the fields, he's the one who divvies out the responsibility, and he's the one who makes the outcome happen, whether it be at your work, in your home, in school, in the church, everywhere, then isn't he the rightful owner of glory and full devotion? You see, as soon as we try to hold on to the lie that I'm pretty important, one of two things are going to happen that are going to destroy us. We're either going to become worthless or ruthless. We're either going to become worthless or ruthless. And what do I mean? Well, as we come to our passage, if there's someone who's higher on our personal hierarchy than we are, maybe they made all the right decisions we wished we would have made. Maybe they were given all the gifts that we wish we would have been given. Maybe they had all the right situations that we so desperately longed for. When we compare ourselves to them, when we're trying to tell ourselves that we're really important, we feel worthless. And then we get jealous. And we start to see the logic of what Paul is presenting here when we seek to tell ourselves the lie that I'm pretty important. On the other hand, let's say you come to someone who's lower on your personal hierarchy. They made a mistake you could never see yourself making. Are you kidding? I can't believe they did that, right? They're, they're lower in their mental capacity and their emotional energy. And, and you look at the situations they're in and you just think they just didn't work hard enough to make the situations happen for themselves. And what happens is, is we look down our noses and we become ruthless with our expectations of other people. You see, one way or another, the lie, I'm pretty important, it isn't livable, it's not sustainable, and it'll destroy us by either making us feel worthless or become ruthless. Do you need to feel important? So important, in fact, that you can't even look at yourself honestly. You gotta constantly seek to weigh yourself out in a personal hierarchy. Well, when we come to the cross, it's level ground. The lowest of the low are brought up. The highest of the high are brought down. And everyone is surrounded looking at Jesus Christ crucified. He's the only one raised up. At his resurrection three days later, the disciples and apostles are on level ground looking as Jesus ascends into heaven. There's only one who's really important. And we stand on level footing. Are you trying to tell yourself day in and day out, no, no, I, I, I am really important. I am important. Instead, make the moment when you look in the mirror, make the statement, God's pretty important. And I'm going to make him known today. I'm going to make his importance and his renown known today, not try to constantly justify my importance. There's freedom in that, friends. Such freedom. And that leads us to our third lie that Paul addresses. A lie that we far too often, I know myself, tell, tell this to myself. And that's, I can do whatever. I can do whatever. 
And this lie, it shows up in all kinds of phrases, right? Well, today's all that matters, is it? Today's all that matters. Or maybe in another angle, whatever I do with my life doesn't really matter because it's all going to end up the same way, right? (laughs) Maybe even in a defensive posture when somebody's confronted you. Well, it's my life anyway. We've had those conversations. We've been those people. And in each one of those scenarios, what we're really trying to do is to convince ourselves that we can live however we so choose without any consequences. And Paul gives us a reality check here in verse 10. And he takes us back from the farm, back into the city, and shows us a great building, uh, building site, a construction site. And you look in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, or 10 through 17, he's showing us a picture of a grand temple being built, being built. You see, the, the people of Corinth, they were used to looking out their windows and seeing these beautiful, huge temples to these other gods in Corinth. But God's calling his people together for a different kind of building, building project to build God's temple, which is made up of God's people. And look with me at chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In each of our lives, we're building something. In each of our days, the moments that go past, we're building something. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the foundation of everything that we do, say, and think should be Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Which is why Paul makes the point that in everything we do, it's first and foremost a response to what God has already done by his grace in Jesus Christ. The foundation is Christ. And Paul laid this for the Corinthians. He said, hey, Jesus Christ is the foundation. Look what God has already done. And now we can respond in gratitude in constructing rather than guilt. Now we can build upon what Christ has done in our daily lives, being driven from acceptance already with God rather than working for acceptance with God. That's a whole different way of working in our world. It's a whole different way of relating with coworkers, with family and friends. But then Paul, he pulls back the curtain even further and he says, I want you to see your foundation is Jesus Christ, but you're going to be held responsible for what you build on that foundation. Look with me at verses 12 through 17. This is a larger chunk of text here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You see, what Paul is saying is, what's at stake isn't your redemption, but your reward your reward. And in the world, we can either build something that lasts, being symbolized by gold, silver, and precious stones, or we can build something with wood, hay, and straw that will not stand the test of time. And Paul wants us to think as we live, as we work, as we worship in all of those areas, to be thinking of eternity, not just what's happening today, 
But what is going to last into eternity? To know that no matter how hard we work to deceive ourselves and to avoid any sort of responsibility, there's a day, whether we like it or not, where everything will be brought to light. And the reality of heaven will descend upon the deception of earth and all will be revealed in its true quality. You see, our work has meaning. You weren't redeemed just to exist from here on out. But our work has value and it can have eternal value if it's built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ in coordination and in gratitude to what he's already done. So don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. God will be the judge. We see that time and time again. And the reason the lie, I can do whatever, is so dangerous to us is that it actually breaks up God's world into sacred and secular domains. You see, God is sovereign over it all. But too many times we can think, okay, God has the say of what goes on over here in the sacred domain. But the secular domain, that's where I kind of have to figure it out for myself. Um, and, And God will be fine with that. Because let's be honest. I think all of us in here, when we say, I can do whatever... We wouldn't say that about everything, no matter where we are in our walk with, with God. We would say, okay, even though I'm still wrestling to think that he exists or not, I still think that he has control over that. Um, but all of us, regardless of our walk with God and Christ at this point, still have things that we like to hold off into our own little domain and say, yeah, but I can do whatever I want with this. I can do whatever I want with my money. I can do whatever I want with my engagement with my church. I can do whatever I want with my sexuality, fill in the blank. And we can be like Tommy Morrison and think we can teleport a whole section of our life outside of God's domain. That's a false reality. That's a false reality. Well, Gabe, who are you to judge? Look, hey, I can't, I won't. But God will be the judge over every area of our lives. And I will be standing with you, not over you. So I speak these words as words of guidance, as awareness to what God's word teaches. And Paul wants us to know that the cross, it speaks into everything, both church work and the church at work. That God in his sovereign wisdom and the power of Jesus Christ crucified, we not only have the power to save, but it's also God's wisdom on how to serve no matter where God has located you in your vocation and service. So as you serve in your community group, as you engage the hospitality team, you help us with sound, you engage children with children's ministries, you mentor a student at Crossroads Academy, you manage work, workflow, and workers at your job, you cultivate a home of love and security. In all of these ways, are you asking the question, how does the cross give me a blueprint, a blueprint to build that which lasts? How does the cross give me a blueprint to build that which lasts? The most dangerous lies are the ones that we tell ourselves. Are you telling yourself, I can do whatever in any one particular area of life? Because God will be the judge over all areas of life, whether we like it or not. And if that last sentence is all you hear, that's a really terrifying thought. (laughs) Because we all know all the different aspects of our life, don't we? We know how we mess things up. We don't turn in projects on time. I mean, it it doesn't matter, you know. See? Um, This passage should always bring great sobriety. It should be a very sobering text. 
that our work matters. It means something to God. What you do with your life means something to God. But it should never terrify us because of the God who says it. You see, when we look at the whole story, we see a God who, yes, expects us to grow, a God who, yes, is the one who's really important, a God who, yes, will be the judge. But out of his outlandish love for us, entered our broken world to expose the lies that we so often believe. Because of his outlandish love for us, went to the cross and took our sin, our punishment upon himself so that when we look to the judgment, we don't have to look with fear ahead of us. Because of the God who said, I'm going to enter this world, I will die on the cross and then three days later rise again physically as a vindication that Jesus is very God, a very God. And now has power to breathe new life to those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Here and now. This kind of God, he empowers us for his expectations. This kind of God shows his importance by dying for those who aren't important. This kind of God exercises his judgment by first and foremost becoming the judgment for us. That's the kind of God I can trust. That's the kind of God I want to grow in knowing. That's the kind of God I want to tell the world is important. That's the kind of God I can trust and be excited, sobered, but excited about the judgment that's to come when I rest in the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, I received an email this past week that was extremely encouraging to me, and I had to share it with you. I got his permission first, so if you ever send me an email, don't think I'm just going to, hey, you're in the sermon. Um, But this gentleman, he's understanding the depths of the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and how it encompasses his whole life. It's downtown congregant Steve Lewis, and he's uh, serving abroad in Australia for a stint. And listen to what he writes. He wasn't, expect, he wasn't writing this to, you know, to look good or anything, but this is just what God was doing in his heart. He said, when I think of where I was a year ago, I understand my life today would not have been possible without my acceptance of Jesus as my Savior and the acceptance that through his death on the cross as forgiveness of my sins, I can be at ease with myself and accept that I am far, far from perfect. And that's okay. A little bit further in the email, he says, I often reflect on my life today, amazed at where I am, how happy I am, how satisfied I am with my accomplishments. That's a tough one. And I realize that all it took was for me to completely turn my life and will over to God, here's the clincher, without reservation. Without reservation. The most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves when we start cutting off God from certain domains in our life. And Steve, he let the cross of Christ and he continues to let the cross of Christ unearth the lies in his own life and put them to death in the cross. This is a prime example. And when we're honest and transparent and admit that we're not okay, that we're not the most important, that God really does care about everything, that it can be an encouragement to others who seek to follow and know him well. What lies are you telling yourself this morning? What lies do you need to surrender and let, be, and, and let stay on the cross of Christ and be crucified with him so that you can enjoy the new life that comes in his resurrection? Don't deceive yourself, but embrace the foolishness of the cross this morning afresh.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have preserved this text, that we do have the wonderful opportunity to hear afresh from you today. Thank you for being engaged in your church and guiding different people to be teachers and guiders that I learn from, that we learn from even still today. That your Holy Spirit continues to guide us into all truth. I pray, Lord, that as we sit here this morning and we wrestle through our own self-deception, different parts of our heart that we don't even realize what we don't know, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would convict us of our deception, of our brokenness. And by God's grace, you never leave us there. May we then bring those brokennesses to the cross and rest in forgiveness and hold fast now to the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. May that define our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.